Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Welcome back to another one of our podcasts. Today, Chris and I are talking to David Koh, Chief Executive of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and probably one of the best leaders for cybersecurity in the world, someone who's made immense progress. So looking forward to this discussion. Thank you, David, for doing it, especially for such a late time in Singapore. Um, why don't we go ahead and get started? Chris, you want to? Yeah, absolutely. David, it's good to see you again. And, and I agree with Jim that you've been a mover and a shaker, someone who's done a lot regionally and, and globally, too. And, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, there's lots we can talk about, including recent events. But, but I guess I'd like to open just with, you know, Singapore has come really a long way in a relatively short period of time, especially compared to a lot of other countries who sometimes are struggling. And I think, you know, a lot of that is due to you. But I just like to get your, you know, sort of your reflections on, on the last, you know, eight, 10 years and how much, how far Singapore has come during that time. Thanks so much. Uh, first, uh, great to see you guys uh, again, Jim and Chris. And uh, thank you for um, inviting me to be part, part of this uh, podcast. First of all, thank you for the kind words. I think that uh, cyber, as we all know, is a team sport. And I think domestically in Singapore, clearly it's a team sport uh, as well. Thank you for the kind words of how far Singapore has come in the last couple of years. Well, let, let, let me um, share my reflections on what's happened. But first of all, um, CSA, the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore, uh, the organization which I'll lead, I guess it's six years old. It's a bit of a coming of age. We, we started crawling, I think a few unsteady steps. And I think we're at that stage now where we're just about ready to go to grade school. Um, it's been frantic, hectic, roller coaster ride these last six years. As you said, I dare say we've made a significant amount of progress uh, in Singapore. The reason, I guess, uh, that uh, so much progress has been made, firstly, is the reality, the realization that we are tremendously dependent on the digital infrastructure. I think we are a small, open, highly connected society. And um, we recognize that the way we work, the way we entertain ourselves, the way we educate ourselves, it's all connected to the internet in this day and age. So the realization that uh, banking connections, uh, finance, all kinds of things depend on the internet uh, uh, made us realize that cybersecurity is an integral part of it. We, we see cybersecurity as a key enabler for the ability for us to continue the way that we live, work, and play. Because of that, hence there was a realization that something urgently needed to be done with respect to cybersecurity. And from that perspective, um, CSA was born. Uh, I had the great honor of being uh, selected uh, to head up the organization uh, when it was first set up. And I would say that it was realization immediately that we were coming off from a low base and we had to practically, urgently uh, move forward. So I guess the realize, uh, fear, I guess, 
you know, the realization that uh, we're behind the power curve was probably what prompted us uh, to move uh, rapidly. I think it also, inverted commas, helped that there were significant uh, high-profile cyber hacks that occurred around the world. This helped to bring the message home uh, in Singapore that cyber risks are real, and that helped to drive the message. Cybersecurity is uh, something that has to be taken care of. So I guess uh, that, in a nutshell, is what drove us to, to try to focus our minds and improve in the last couple of years. Singapore's been a leader in the region. In fact, you've probably moved ASEAN faster along than many other regions. What, what do you think the lay of the land is there? How do things look in the, in the region now for next steps? Thank you. Yes, we recognize that no man is an island and all the more so for cyber. The nature of cyber digital is that it's cross-border, international. So we realized that uh, no matter what we did for ourselves in Singapore, it wouldn't be sufficient. Our immediate hinterland our, is our region, is ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And we recognize that firstly, from an economic perspective, our future is tied somewhat to the greater ASEAN region, 650 million people uh, who are fast uh, coming up the economic ladder uh, and at the same time also leveraging on um, ICT uh, technologies in terms of the economy, in terms of education, and, and there are great benefits uh, economically, uh, financially uh, for ASEAN as a whole to leverage on uh, ICT. And Singapore's economy would benefit part of this wider growth in ASEAN if we can successfully tap on it. But obviously, we can only successfully leverage on digitalization and ICT technologies if we can also deal with the cyber risks as well. So for these reasons, we felt it was incumbent on us to spread the message uh, to our ASEAN neighbors. So I would say that almost concurrently, as we were trying to spread the message uh, domestically, that, hey, cyber is real, uh, we are heavily exposed, we got to do something about it. Uh, almost concurrently, we were sending a similar message um, to our ASEAN neighbors to say that mm, we think that uh, there's great opportunity in digitalization, there's great opportunity in ICT, but there's a slight problem called cyber and we need to do something about this. And uh, I think the, the message that we are dependent, uh, we are interdependent, and that cyber is something that we need to deal with before we can um, reap the full benefits of digitalization has had traction in ASEAN. So I'm happy to say that uh, we were able, uh, firstly, uh, to get uh, all the ASEAN uh, member states to attend a meeting at the ministerial level on an annual basis. Uh, it started uh, when uh, my then minister uh, said that uh, we'll invite his fellow uh, counterparts from all the ASEAN nations to Singapore and we can discuss about uh, ASEAN. So that was how the ASEAN Ministerial Conference on Cybersecurity was born. Actually, a funny story. We didn't know whom to invite. I mean, first, the question is that, is there, is there a minister in charge of uh, cybersecurity? So the minister had a brilliant idea. He said, look, there, I attend the telecommunications ministers meeting. Uh, there's an existing ASEAN mini, uh, meeting for telecoms ministers. I will tell my counterparts that we are going to have this uh, meeting in Singapore on cybersecurity. And he did that. He told all of his counterparts, they are invited to Singapore and please bring a friend. Yes. Uh, yes. Any other minister <laughs> in your country who is looking after cybersecurity. 
So instead of just inviting nine other countries, we have to invite 18 ministers. Uh, and uh, I would be very honest that the first year, it was a bit of a finding our way, you know, what exactly uh, is this about? Who is that? But by the second year, we found that uh, the message had gone back. Countries, our neighbors had organized themselves. They had decided uh, uh, how they should be organized domestically. Uh, in some cases, it was the Ministry of Interior. In other cases, it was telecommunications uh, minister. In some cases, it was the prime minister's office or the president's office. Uh, but increasingly, we had this uh, growing momentum among the ASEAN member states that they recognized that, look, this is something that's important. I'm not the only one who's uh, concerned about it. All the other countries in ASEAN recognize this and we better do something together. And that's how it worked. I think the high point, as it were, was in 2018, when Singapore was uh, actually ASEAN chair. And the ASEAN leaders, not the ministers, but the leaders, the presidents and the prime ministers, issued a first ever ASEAN leaders statement on cybersecurity cooperation. This was at the 32nd ASEAN summit. And it called for greater coordination of the cybersecurity efforts within ASEAN on cyber policy, norms, CBMs, and capacity building. So I think it was something that was uh, tremendous that we had gotten a message to all the 10 ASEAN member states. It had gone up and it was uh, having attention at the leaders' level. I thought one of the most innovative things you did is exactly that to find a friend, bring a friend, uh, because uh, it is true as you look around the world, and, and certainly within ASEAN, different ministers have different responsibilities. And sometimes those ministers compete with each other. That's just the nature of the way things are. So getting getting everyone there made a huge difference, I think. And and I I've used that phrase often in other contexts that you know, which I attribute to you, saying you know, that that's a way to build more capacity. You know, going back a little bit to you know, were you the first? I think Singapore was. So I first met you, I think, in uh, in the Netherlands at the big Dutch cyberspace conference. And I think it wasn't that long after that that Singapore actually had its first uh, cyber strategy. I think it was maybe a year or two after that, because uh, that was only five or six years ago now. I think you were the first in the region to have a cyber strategy. Is that right? Chris, your memory is great. I was just reflecting on this. I was telling you that CSA and uh, it's just six years old. So that trip to the Netherlands it was the first trip that I took as a chief executive of CSA. I would admit totally that at that point in time, I had entered uh, the arena under the impression that my job was a primarily an operational and technical job. I mean, I was in charge of cybersecurity. That meant operational and technical to me. I think I was somewhat qualified to lead the organization if that was the focus. Uh, since then, I've uh, discovered that there's uh, many other dimensions to this nature of the world. And that uh, first meeting that I had with you uh, in the Netherlands was an eye-opener because uh, the first question I thought was that I'm meeting uh, my counterparts. I should be meeting other operational, technical people, etc. And then my first meeting with you, you're, you're from the Department of State, you're a lawyer. It's like, what do we have in common with one another? <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, I, well, first of all, uh, it was the beginning of a great friendship. So, uh, Chris, that, uh, and, and I also want to thank you because uh, I don't know if you realize it, but you... Uh, needled me and uh, cajoled me and uh, shamed me to some extent that, look, Singapore ought to be doing a lot more, okay? Uh, I might have uh, laughed it off at that meeting, but I came back and, uh, you know, had some, we, we, we took the, the message well put very seriously. And uh, I think we uh, came back and uh, 
increased our speed all the more so because I had gone to the Netherlands that first set of meetings with the message that look, Singapore has just started on the journey of cybersecurity. Mine is a new agency. We're just a couple of weeks old. Um, we're finding our feet. Where can we learn, etc. And people like yourself said that, oh, it's great. You guys are here. You've got your act together. We expect great things from Singapore. So I don't know if you remember saying that, but words to those effect. So I was thinking to myself, what have I got myself into? But I, I think the message uh, was well uh, taken that we were behind the power curve, as I said earlier. Um, so we came back and we moved very rapidly. So one of the well, things uh, uh, we are familiar with is putting together a strategy. So we came back and we worked very rapidly on that strategy, um, managed to get it out uh, in a couple of months. And at the uh, first Singapore International Cyber Week uh, following year, um, the Prime Minister himself uh, launched it. I think it galvanized the domestic uh, audience because now we had an overarching uh, strategy. We, we've got a plan, all right? The devil's in the details, but at least there is firstly a commitment that this is something that needs to be done. There's a commitment all the way from the top. The Prime Minister himself launched it. This is important and this is the rough shape of what we're going to do. So I think that uh, helped to get all the cats come together and then Myself, I guess, as the uh, chief herder of CAT, uh, was able to get this uh, movement going. Five years is a long time in cyber. So I think the uh, cybersecurity strategy that we have uh, is due for a refresh. We are in the process of working that out. A lot has changed <laughs> since the launch of that cybersecurity uh, strategy. But it uh, was, as I said, um, very useful. It provided a framework, provided uh, uh, something for people to rally around. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we did it, and I'm glad that it's taken us this It's not yeah. unusual. Most people, when they they meet me, say, what the hell have I gotten myself into? So that's Yeah. It. Speaking of herding cats, uh, <laughs> Ambassador Laubert was able to herd the cats to a successful conclusion in the UN. You were part of that. But we're left now with two questions, and I wondered if you could talk on both of them. The first question is, what next? You have, again, competing proposals the program of action that some countries have put forward. They're not necessarily competitive, but they're alternative. And then the Russian, speaking again of five years, the Russian proposal for a five-year OEWG discussion. So you've got POA and OEWG, but maybe you could also touch on one of the problems we had in the OEWG was what is the role of the non-governmental community other than to look hungrily through the window because they weren't allowed to talk. What do you think? Jim, great. Thanks so much for all those questions. Each of them, I think, deserves a podcast by, by itself. No, it will challenge your ability to be diplomatic. <laughs> Indeed. I, I, and this is after I just told you that uh, I'm not a diplomat. I came from the operational and technical <laughs> side of the house. But uh, yeah, I think the OEWG has been... Uh, a great success due in no small part to the excellent uh, uh, chairmanship of uh, Jörg Lauber. I think, first of all, Singapore's view is that it is vitally important to have a rules-based international order in cyberspace. As a small country, open uh, economy, we're dependent on a rules-based uh, system. And uh, it's totally relevant uh, for the cyber domain as well, because we're so dependent on the digital uh, domain. The United Nations is the appropriate forum uh, for these discussions to take place. And the reason is because 
Firstly, it's open inclusive. 193 countries are a member of it. All countries, large and small, have a place there. For these reasons, uh, we think that uh, this is an appropriate forum to continue these uh, conversations. On the OEWG itself, I personally uh, reflected on it, and I think that what is significant about it is two aspects. The first aspect is that we have, for the first time, truly open, inclusive, non uh, and transparent process where all 193 countries were able uh, to participate. Uh, we've had previous uh, processes, but those involved much smaller groups. Singapore herself was not a member of any of these previous uh, conversations. And uh, allowing all 193 uh, UN member states to be part of it allowed for, um, I think, an uh, open, inclusive uh, conversation. And what, in my own reflection, I had initially expected a smaller group of countries to actively participate at the OEWG. But I was pleasantly surprised by the very broad spectrum of participation at the OEWG uh, conversations. Uh, many of them were represented by their permanent representative uh, missions at the United Nations herself. But the content of what the permanent representatives were, were reading out was clearly from uh, operational or technical expert who understood what the issues were, understood uh, the importance of cybersecurity to that respective country. This, in my opinion, was a very significant achievement. The broadening of the conversation to a much wider body of the, the international community. And the fact that we successfully uh, achieved the consensus report, I think should be something that's recognized. The fact that so many countries understand that cyber is important. Cyber is important to them from their national interests. And they recognize that uh, we have to work together. No individual, no one country can solve this problem by herself. Uh, we all have to work together and that they're all committed to working together. I think this is a significant uh, achievement. Uh, prior to that, I would say that only a small minority of countries got it as it were. Uh, now I can say that the vast majority of UN member states have gotten the message. We may not totally agree on what the answer is, but there's a general acceptance that it is a problem. It is an issue that is of importance, and we obviously need to work together. These uh, commonalities and the fact that we've got a consensus report, I think uh, these are important elements to bring the forward momentum. The second big issue, uh, I think, of uh, note in terms of the achievement of the OEWG is the affirmation or the reaffirmation of the consensus, the UNGGE reports, the 2015, the 2013 uh, uh, UNGGE reports, where um, some people are calling it the ACTI of the norms of responsible state behavior uh, in the use of ICT are now um, reaffirmed. I say reaffirmed because the UNGGE reports, although they were prepared by a smaller group of countries, was um, ultimately, in all cases, sent to the UN General Assembly. Uh, but I suspect that not all countries took note of um, the details of those reports. But now when the conversation has come to the OEWG and all 193 countries were members of it, I think there was an opportunity for everyone to look at those, the content, and, and in the process, as I said, reaffirm the active. Uh, this, in, in, in my assessment, also is very significant. Uh, because the worst case scenario could have been that we had reopened it and then the Aki might have been disowned. And then we would have to uh, start all over again. And that would have set back progress 
very significantly, 15, 20 years of work would have been undone. I'm glad to say that the OEWG consensus report has reaffirmed that. And at least now we have a solid base, a foundation from which to work on and move this forward. So I think that the OEWG has been successful in that respect. Uh, what goes on next? Well, as you said, Jim, there's the uh, resolution authored by the Russian to uh, extend the OEWG by five more years. So that's one element that's going forward. Is there a, the GGE process is ongoing as we speak. So I'm a member of, uh, I'm one of the 25 members of the GGE. So that's going on. And then there's, as you said, there is the uh, POA, uh, Program of Action. There's a possibility that after the GGE concludes, that there might be another resolution for a GGE as well. So I, first of all, will say that I'll confess that I'm not a diplomat. I'm not an expert on the UN processes. And the last time I checked, uh, I wasn't issued a crystal ball as part of my taking on this position. So I have no general sense of uh, what will happen, how this will go. I did speak to a senior diplomat and uh, asked him about how this would work and whether it will uh, collage into one uh, program uh, or one, one uh, process or the other. And he told me that, oh, David, in the UN, the uh, general observation is that it's a variable geometry. <laughs> so I, I had a good laugh. And uh, what I understand is that um, there's a general uh, rough approach forward, but sometimes uh, the shape shifts in one direction, another direction, multiple points. I must admit that when he first told me this, uh, it did uh, upset a lot of my engineering uh, sensibilities. <laughs> I didn't quite understand uh, how this might work out, uh, but having uh, operated in the diplomatic uh, arena for a little bit longer, I'm beginning to see there is some uh, method in the madness, as it were, and uh, it looks like this is uh, possible. Singapore is actually a co-sponsor of the program of action, uh, and the reason for this is because we, we think that there is merit in, in a reg regular institutional dialogue mechanism which will be open, inclusive, and consensus-driven. So we believe that that's where the POA is headed. Um, and it is a practical way forward to maintain this open, inclusive, and institutionalized platform for cyber discussions. But like um, you've said, and I totally agree, they're not exclusive. It's not a choice of one or the other. I think uh, so long as the general approach uh, uh, is forwards and roughly the same direction, I think there's scope for more than one process. As we've observed with the OEWG and the GGE thus far, I would admit that my own observation at that point in time when the resolutions were both passed was a bit of disappointment. I had actually asked myself, how will we be able to achieve consensus? If we can't even achieve consensus in the resolution to create the platforms, um, as it were, because there was no consensus to have one platform, so there's one resolution for OEWG, another resolution for the GGE. Well, a year and a half later, now when we look at it, uh, we were successful in achieving a consensus report for OEWG. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to do the same for the GGE and for any other process that's going forward. Because my sense of it is that there is a momentum, a positive momentum, where states recognize that there is a, a need. Cyber is an issue. Second, that we need to work together. And uh, although we may not fully agree on all the uh, differences, uh, we may not fully agree on the details, and there are existing differences. Uh, nonetheless, there's 80% of things which we can agree with. And perhaps consensus can be built around that 80%, which we all agree. 
rather than to split the difference on the 20% where there are real issues and there are differences of opinion. I believe that um, we can move forward and achieve sufficient momentum on the 80% which we generally agree on. So uh, just uh, the other part of Jim, you know, there was a, a big effort, I think, by Ambassador uh, Lauber and y- yourself to bring other stakeholders into this process. I think the reviews were great uh, that it was done, unprecedented it was done. But I think on both sides, there was a feeling, well, it wasn't as actionable as people had hoped. You know, even with all the efforts that was done, you know, uh, I, among others, were at the special meeting that you chaired in December back in the before times now <laughs> when we all got to travel. Um, and, and that was really, you know, that was groundbreaking for the UN, but at the same time, it was people reading statements. And so, you know, and there were chances to weigh in, but there still was this this kind of uneasy dance and a feeling, I think, a little bit of feeling on both sides that didn't completely jive. There needs to be more done. And you were you were very helpful in bringing that together. So I'd be interested in your perspectives of happened and also how can this go forward, even with like the plant the program of action, to get these other folks more involved. Thanks for reminding me of that time before COVID when we could all travel. Yes. Um, so as part of the OEWG, there was this intersessional session, uh, multi-stakeholder, uh, which I had the honor to chair. Um, this was uh, back in uh, December, I recall, of uh, 2019, was it? Yep. That was a multi-stakeholder event. And uh, if I recall, we had, what, 100 states, 114 non-governmental stakeholders from the private sector, civil society, academia, as well as the technical community who turned up in the UN uh, and um, they were involved in this informal intersessional consultative meeting. I would say that it was a great honor for me to chair the process, but at a personal level, I was fundamentally shocked at how many people uh, from all over the world, from so many dimensions, uh, were so committed, so deeply involved, and and had such great ideas. So at the one level, intellectually, I understand that for cybersecurity, we need a multi-stakeholder process. And the reason is that states by themselves can't deal with the problem without the help of the other stakeholders. These include academia, civil society, uh, industry. A lot of the internet infrastructure is not controlled by states. It's controlled by private industry. A lot of the technology that's coming out is coming from the industry. Academia has a big role to play. A civil society uh, represents uh, important stakeholders as well. So these are just examples of why we need to have this multi-stakeholder um, engagement. So at the intellectual level, we understand this. But even though I understood this, uh, I was fundamentally surprised when I chaired that meeting and, you know, there was just so many people and so many of them were firstly knowledgeable, secondly committed, and I think deeply committed to wanting to be part of the solution. Do you think all states share that view though? Because because at least two big states would tell you they have control of their networks, not the private sector. (laughs) And, And they're right. It's a different model. So how much of this is a competition to... Uh, you can ask Jack Ma about the importance of the private sector if you want. But how much of this is a competition between different models? Right. I, I think that's a fair comment. But I think that for now, the preponderance of uh, the experience, the preponderance of the uh, lived uh, experience is that it is a lot of it uh, requires multi-stakeholder. And I think that uh, 
one might be able to achieve what you've described in a domestic setting. But the moment you're connected to a global economy, you're talking about international trade, finance, the moment you're trying to talk about um, collective knowledge of the world, then I think that you need an open, secure, and interoperable internet. You can't uh, go behind your walled garden, try to, without some cost. And I think it's a significant cost economically, financially, um, and uh, socially for the betterment of population. So I think for these reasons, uh, my hope is that we will continue to have an open, secure, and interoperable internet. And in order to do this, then we do need a multi-stakeholder approach. Going back to Chris's point, I think that the outcomes of the first OEWG might be more limited than some people had hoped. But considering from where we had started, I think that this is a good, uh, credible, and significant outcome. And what I mean by where we have started, if you talk about the 25 countries who have been members of the uh, GGE, for example, then yeah, we already know all this. And some would argue we haven't made that much significant progress. But actually, if you look at the records, how many countries have been part of the GGE process these last uh, six uh, rounds of discussions? The vast majority of UN member states have not been part of it. And I would say that those countries are starting from a much lower base. Their interests, their concerns are, I think, much more basic. And for us to be able to bring them up to this common uh, level, and for us to agree that this is the common base that we will henceforth start from, I think, in my personal opinion, is a significant achievement. Plus, Andre gets another medal every time there's a resolution. And a bigger apartment. Um, need those uh, broad chests. <laughs> more lots, room for lots of sweater room. You know, one of the things that came up, and, and you know, especially, and you're right, I, I, I thought, at least I saw a lot of the countries who hadn't participated before be really excited to be there. I mean, it was an interesting dynamic that they really welcomed the opportunity. But sorry to interrupt. I, I would add more than that. I agree with you. Yes, it's obvious that they, they were very engaged. Uh, they had the opportunity, etc. But I would add one more dimension. A lot of them had different perspectives. Yeah. They had a different angle and oh. they brought a degree, a new new element to the conversation, broadening the conversation, giving us a different dimension. I think the OEWG process allowed us to give the developing states, the small states, the ones not fully uh, included in the process, a voice. And they shared with us a different perspective. So I think small, developing states, etc. these are a new dimension to the conversation, new, new uh, texture. Well, you, you raised the point that they had different, different perspectives. And the one thing that seemed to be a common perspective of many countries that was raised as a foundational issue for many of them was this issue of capacity building. You know, they cared about some of these big political arguments about norms and things, but they cared more about getting help and actually getting up to that level that you talked about where all countries have some basic capability. And, and Singapore has taken a, you know, a pretty strong view of this, especially in the region. So I, I wondered if you want to talk about some of the things that Singapore is doing, especially recently in that area. And obviously you work with my other organization, the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise as well. So, so just wanted to get your perspective on how important that block of, of issues is. Yes, we work with GFC very closely and with other partners in the area of capacity building. Why did we go into capacity building? Well, I, I would say that some element of it is uh, enlightened self-interest. I think uh, people commonly say that cybersecurity is such that you're only as strong as the weakest link. Uh, normally, this is said in the context of an enterprise, uh, you know, a network, etc. 
But the reality is that uh, this is true of uh, the global commons. This is true of a uh, region. So Singapore recognizes that collective cybersecurity of ASEAN, for example, is only as good as the weakest link. So it is in our interest to raise up, firstly, the awareness for the need of cybersecurity among our neighbors. Secondly, to help them build the capacity. And I think that this has been recognized and there's broad agreement, firstly, within ASEAN among the 10 ASEAN member states. But secondly, also with the dialogue partners of ASEAN. So ASEAN has established dialogue partners and these are extra-regional countries who, who choose to dialogue with ASEAN and they agree that uh, capacity building through the ASEAN mechanism is also useful. So we have found that um, when we started our capacity uh, building initiatives, there was a lot of traction with extraterritorial partners who said that, hey, we're quite uh, willing to partner with you and uh, deliver some of the uh, cyber capacity and expertise uh, to your region. We were pleasantly surprised, but then we really, we subsequently realized that the reason was that many of these countries were already participating in their own capacity building efforts by themselves. Uh, so they saw in us the opportunity, firstly, where we would be a regional partner uh, in the same time zone, in the same region, understand it, and we could help coordinate the efforts. Second, I think that there was also a realization that perhaps things would be much more effective if they were coordinated so that like five or six different efforts uh, didn't keep repeating the training to the same group of people uh, in, in uh, three different occasions, but rather that we coordinated it such that different things would get covered uh, with different people over time. And this is, uh, I think, um, our realization of some of the value proposition that we bring. So Singapore has uh, started um, this ASEAN Singapore Cyber Center of Excellence, the ASCCE, this was launched in 2019 to support this coordinated cybersecurity capacity building effort for the region. And the key partners include uh, ASEAN member states, the dialogue partners, as well as industry and academic institutions. And two years ago, we also got the UNODA, United Nations Office of Disarmament Affairs, as one of our partners. So we're working with the UN as well. Um, and the evolution of work such has now enhanced cyber capacity of the ASEAN member states over the last five years. We don't just do operational and technical uh, work. That is, of course, an important element of it. But there's also policy discussions, helping people to understand uh, norms, as well as international law, all dimensions uh, to this whole wider cyber uh, issue. There are also other ASEAN uh, capacity building centers within uh, uh, the ASEAN member countries. Uh, these include the ASEAN-Japan Cyber Capacity Building Center uh, in Bangkok, and we work closely with them to make sure that we coordinate and we don't end up duplicating things. And of course, as, as we've said at the start, we work with uh, GFCE, for example, as a platform for the multi-stakeholder collaboration. Uh, so we do try to put the multi-stakeholder approach into the interaction in ASEAN. Now, how do we do the capacity building? We adopt a 4M approach, and this is where it's multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder, modular, and we have metrics. So it's multidisciplinary because it's not just technical, there's all kinds of diplomatic policy, et cetera, in the capacity building. Multi-stakeholder, as we've said, we recognize that states need support, but not all the capacity comes from states themselves. It's modular, and over time, we're trying to curate a whole uh, slew of different programs where 
people can progressively upskill themselves. And lastly, like a good civil servant that I am, we have to have metrics so that uh, we can measure the effectiveness of all this over time. So this is just uh, some elements of the capacity building that we are doing in uh, ASEAN. I think my job is to be the bad cop on this call. So I'm going to put you on the spot again. Lee Kuan Yew, he was a world statesman and he was a master at balancing between two competing powers, right? And so I used to admire Singapore's ability to walk that line, which was also variable geometry. We're moving into a situation where something like that might be reappearing. What are you going to do to do the Lee Kuan Yew Act too. Uh, how will you balance the? And I know this is a hard question, and you are a, a serving official, but tell us as much as you can. And if you could use your elephants analogy again, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think in a previous conversation that I had with uh, Chris, I said that uh, you know the there's an Asian uh, proverb that uh, when the elephants fight, then the ants suffer. Uh, and for that matter, when the elephants make love, the ants suffer as well. <laughs> so the reality is that uh, we who are ants have to uh, manage um, and re recognize the realities. Uh, specifically, the question that you ask, how are we going to uh, deal with these uh, challenges? Our Prime Minister, um, Mr. Lee Sen Lung, recently uh, said that no country wants to have to choose sides choose between two superpowers and that remains our stance if you look back the reality is that we have all benefited from an open economic trading system the world as a whole has benefited immensely economically from this open economic trading system that we have today and and singapore has benefited uh, significantly uh, as part of this uh, global uh, uh, trend all of this is made possible because of free flow of trade, information, goods, services, etc. Um, and this has resulted in interconnected supply chains and the increasingly uh, information and data flows as well. If there is a move to segregate, and some people talk in the worst case of uh, tech bifurcation, I think if you move in that direction, then I think that we will all suffer as a result. I think the degree of shock, uh, whether it's even possible to disaggregate um, heavily intertwined uh, uh, linkages that we have, I'm not uh, sure. So the I ideal, I believe, is that uh, we find a way to work together. And as I said, we do need, for all our sakes, an open, secure, and interoperable internet where we are able to work together. Now, I don't think it's a binary situation of yes and no. There have always been systems, there have always been equipment that aren't interoperable. I think for national security reasons, some certain things are not interoperable. If I have an encryptor, it's not interoperable with the competing uh, state because uh, I don't need it to be. It's not meant to be. Uh, by design, they're not meant to be interoperable. I'm trying to secure my information for myself. Fighter jets, I don't think that the uh, fighter jets of one superpower are interoperable with the fighter jets of another uh, superpower. They're not meant to be. Uh, so there's one class of things which, by definition, uh, not don't need to be interoperable. 
there are other things which must be things which support the global financial uh, system swift for example things which uh, support uh, trade flows um, these need to be interoperable otherwise our goods our services shipping can't take place planes take off and they have to land at uh, another country and the systems the communications uh, the data need to be interoperable so and in between there's a, there's a space where they're semi interoperable etc perhaps through gateways etc so i i think that we don't need to conflate everything into one big aggregated block and yeah. either yes or no there's some uh, where i think the benefits of being uh, working together cooperating and uh, being interoperable being open secure and interoperable really are quite clear and there are others and, and this need not be done at the expense of the le- uh, legitimate uh, national security concerns then there are others where there are legitimate national security concerns and those don't need to be interoperable and you can have and you will have two separate supply chains for those mm-hmm. uh, um, types mm-hmm. of equipment systems etc but you don't need to extend that argument and lump everything together good answer you know this is not the technical side but there is you know a growing sense there needs to be more accountability in cyberspace that is important as the norms are and the framework and you know that sets the kind of expectations but there be needs to be accountability and to some extent consequences for bad actors and, and there's been a big move by the US and others to have more collective response where does that put singapore because you know it's the same kind of question you're if you join that collective response you're likely to aggravate one party or the other uh, either way But at the same time I think you acknowledge uh, from what I've heard you say before that there needs to be more accountability to actually make these rules and these these guidelines and make sense and to have some force. I think it's a great question. I think fully agree that uh if you want a stable rules-based international system then there needs to be accountability and you need to speak up for it. So a specific example uh, which I would say is that uh, we recognize uh, for example um the importance of unclos united nations convention for the law of the sea and even though singapore is not a claimant state in the south china sea when we see actions which uh, contravene unclos then uh, my country has spoken up against some of those actions it's not against a particular country or uh, in support of some other country but rather it's against the principle that international law or the rules or norms have been undermined so we see the value of upholding the international rules based system in that respect conceptually i totally agree that the uh, same has to be done for cyberspace uh, singapore has not uh, yet done any of this because we're still in the process of working out our national positions and processes for this but um, i think uh, at a conceptual level it's clear that uh, there's value in uh, doing this the challenge however i think is that in cyberspace challenge of of actually being able to recognize who did it and i think that goes down back to the origins of the internet where the internet uh, was designed in a different time for a different purpose and now uh, and in some respects uh, it was not designed uh, with security in mind and part of the dimension of it is uh, anonymity i think uh, the anonymity is great when you're wanting to engage in uh, comments you want to post cat videos etc Uh, all this is great but for some of the purposes uh, even for example for secure banking transactions this element of anonymity may not be ideal for the purpose and the reason really was the internet was not designed 
with these uh, use case purposes uh, in mind. So because we are dealing with this challenge, then calling out bad behavior becomes, I think, a related issue. Because if one is unable to identify clearly who the person is or who is responsible for it, then that raises a different challenge. This challenge doesn't exist in the physical world. So for example, if you're dealing with physical, uh, in the physical domain, someone has done something, then we're able to collect the evidence relatively uh, easily for this. A challenge in the cyber domain is that that's not so easily done. It requires a high degree of technical uh, sophistication and capability, some of which is uh, sensitive, classified, etc. So now it becomes a case of like, I, you know, I think you did it. I'm pretty sure you did it. Well, and then like, show me the proof. I'm sorry, the proof is classified. I can't show it to you, etc. So that, that makes it a bit awkward. I, I think this is one of the challenges that have to be addressed. Some people have argued that um, in the area of cybercrime, a lot can be done if we could reduce the level of anonymity. So if we could, for example, deal with know your customer type approach and, uh, for example, make it much harder to register uh, domain names. Uh, in some jurisdictions, domain names, uh, you, you, you don't need anything, any kind of proof of ID uh, to register a domain name. And then consequently, they can be used for malicious purposes. And when I see an attack in my country and I trace it to this domain name, then I try to find out like who registered it and I reach a dead end. So that uh, becomes a challenge. But if everybody played their part, for example, if the domain name registrar exercised greater due care and concern, like uh, in the banking and finance sector with uh, know your customer, for example, uh, then I think that this would reduce the level of noise significantly. I think it's analogous to anti-money laundering uh, measures that have taken place in the last 10, 15 years, uh, significant progress. Perhaps we can look forward to something similar uh, in the cyber domain in the next uh, five, 10 years as well. Yeah, you may see that in uh, ransomware pretty soon. Singapore in September of 2019, I think you were one of the signatories of that statement at the General Assembly about a group of countries, 27, 28 countries that reserve the right to take action when someone failed to observe the norms of responsible state behavior. Where do you think that will go? That's the direction that some countries are moving in, is that we have a framework of responsible state behavior from 2015 re-endorsed now by the uh, OEWG. What would you think are the issues in taking action? I mean, what are the, is it proportionality? What is it? Is it a attribution you've mentioned? I don't think it's as big a problem. Sharing information is a big problem. What do you think the other issues are? Well, first of all, let me clarify, Jim. We, Singapore did not uh, take part in that joint statement in September of uh, 2019. But I, I think that uh, one realization in terms of the problem statement, what is the problem? Uh, one realization that I had as part of the GGE and OEWG process was cybercrime is a huge problem. Yeah. I, I think when we talked about the need for cybersecurity, yeah. um, advanced states are talking about rules for uh, norms for responsible state behavior, uh, issues like attribution, uh, consequences, as what we have just discussed. But for the average country, especially the developing countries, their realization or their perspective of what the real issue is, the right up front and center is cybercrime. That is the issue that's facing them. And I can totally understand uh, because if you are a country trying to digitalize, trying to reap the benefits of ICT, 
and you've got like, I don't know, 50 million people where you see that, you know, I can bring them forward into the, in the 21st century um, and they can be exposed to, you know, knowledge, education uh, and uh, opportunity. But if you don't have cybersecurity, education, cyber hygiene, then this will be mm. 50 more million people who will be exposed to the threats of cyber crime, etc. Even in Singapore, we realize that uh, other forms of crime are dropping or have dropped and been under control. But one dimension, cyber crime has been going up steadily for the last few years. This is a significant challenge. Mm. And uh, I think uh, issues like ransomware that you talked about, scams, um, these are real problems. Even in Singapore, we're relatively uh, advanced. Uh, we are working uh, very closely with the police force uh, to try to, to deal with this. I think uh, many other countries are facing similar challenges. A lot of it is not uh, uh, underreported. Um, and increasingly, as, uh, as uh, people move into e-commerce and um, reap the benefits of uh, buying things on the internet, etc., then I think the attack surfaces increases. I think that's a significant uh, area uh, which is uh, perhaps underappreciated today. This is arguably an issue which is not uh, directly under the purview of the uh, OEWG or GGE because those were born out of the United Nations uh, first committee process. But I would say that when I speak to my counterparts and we talk about cybersecurity, it's not always clear where cybersecurity starts and where it ends. I think the definition of cybersecurity is different uh, and the interest of my counterparts in different countries is quite different. Uh, there is an element of uh, obviously an interest for critical infrastructure, uh, essential services, etc., cetera, uh, and national security. But there's also very often a uh, strong interest in the area of cyber crime as well as uh, disinformation. So I, I think one of the challenges of cyber crime is to make it clear that that is a real, you know, national security priority on par, maybe with some of the nation state stuff. Uh, and when you talk about ransomware, this is one of the things people are not, not focused on. That could have a very disruptive effect. Sometimes states can be involved. There could be proxy elements. Uh, so it seems to me that part of that is is raising that that level of awareness, if not the same level, at least getting states to understand this is a, a big issue and to prioritize this as well. I totally agree, Chris. But I, I think when I first started uh, in this position, I thought it was fairly clear. You know, I was interested in uh, the critical infrastructure, just this providing essential services to my country. You know, to keep the lights on, etc. And the real threat would be state-sponsored APTs, etc. And the issue of uh, cyber criminals there in a different class. I remember. You know, uh, having those PowerPoint slides where you know at the top you have the sophisticated state actors, right. APTs, etc. Then you have cybercrime, and then you have individual script kiddies. I think today the technical capability of these three groups is uh, is spreading and uh, they're overlapping. Uh, secondly, I think some um, cyber criminal uh, groups have reached that level of sophistication and organization where they they uh, exceed some uh, state capabilities. And thirdly, some of the uh, state uh, actors uh, that we see are not adverse to uh, using um, contractors who sometimes are moonlight uh, and yeah. uh, operate in the cybercrime uh, space as well. So I, I think when you look at it from a threat perspective, um, the nature of the threat is that um, it's blurring together, uh, it's overlapping, 
some individual capabilities uh, may be higher than uh, uh, organized gangs. Some organized gangs may be higher than uh, national capabilities. And uh, unlike in the real world, people don't wear uniforms. So it's right. not so easy to recognize uh, all of this. And consequently, I think from a defender's perspective, I think uh, we have to organize ourselves better. We have to operate in a more integrated uh, manner domestically. Earlier on, you were saying that large countries, sometimes, you know, the departments, organizations uh, don't necessarily uh, cooperate that well and sometimes are competing with one another. So even though we're a small country, these are natural uh, organizational dynamics. These are things that need to be done and we need to work better because uh, the issue is we're not competing against ourselves or with one another. We're competing against other people who want to do malicious harm to us. Something we call in the U.S. silos of excellence, you know, people doing their uh, thing. And and I, I came from a cybercrime background, not doing it, but uh, but prosecuting it. Um, but there are overlaps, I think, and, and attribution is, is one. I, to be frank, I used to keep people you, like you off my juries because if you were an engineer, you wanted mathematical proof of everything instead of beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, but it is a big issue. Well, let me just end, you know, it's been great having you with us and, and maybe just let, let me end on an open-ended question. What next for Singapore? What do you want, you know, not maybe an easy open-ended question, but but where do you want to take <laughs> that? You've built so much in such a short time. Where where next? Thanks, Chris. And I, I also want to thank uh, you guys for inviting me for this uh, podcast. I think it's a great honor to be here and just share our reflections and thoughts. And thanks for that question, like what next for Singapore? I, I will say that um, actually we do have significant shift. We're in the process of making a significant shift in Singapore. When CSA was first formed, our focus up front and center was critical infrastructure. I think that uh, we were set up uh, with the view that look after, co coordinate national cyber security response. And for me, that meant... Uh, making sure that essential services, that is the country needs, the citizens need, uh, the economy needs, uh, continue. Uh, we've done that, uh, and I would dare say, in the last few years, we have reached some level of capability in protecting our uh, essential services. Definitely not uh, where we want to be fully, but there's been significant uh, progress. What we've realized now that is that that is by itself insufficient. It's not enough. Yes. You deal with the critical infrastructure, the uh, CIIs, but that's only a small fraction of the whole country. What we have, we, we have realized is that we need to take care to some level um, the rest of the country, the non-CIIs, the large enterprises, the small and medium enterprises, the men in the street. This is the vast majority of the country. And uh, we can't, achieve the same level of protection as we can for, as we have done for the CIIs. I think the level of focus, the level of resources that have gone into that is at one level because it's providing essential services. But for the rest of the country, we recognize that it can't be zero. You know, you can't like focus on the CIIs and neglect everyone else. So as part of the big shift last year, uh, we launched the Safer Cyberspace Master Plan. In this we recognize that uh, we'll try to put in place a broad uh, sweep of measures to take care of the non-CIIs, the large enterprises, the small and medium enterprises, as well as the ministry. And a lot of it will be looking at the broad infrastructure to strengthen the general level of cybersecurity. 
among individuals, the community, businesses, and organizations. The master plan comprises three trusts. Firstly, to secure the core digital infrastructure, safeguard our cyberspace activities, and thirdly, to empower a cyber savvy population. So first of all, we realize that you can't deal with each enterprise individually or each individual a person individually. So we have to go upstream. So everyone depends on the infrastructure, the ISPs, for example. So we want to raise broadly uh, the level of cyber hygiene at the infrastructure level. And then secondly, I think we want to raise the level of overall cyberspace activities. So one of the initiatives that we have done is a cybersecurity labeling scheme. So we recognize that there's lack of transparency. When you buy a router, when you buy a baby camera, you know, you don't know what's the level of cybersecurity in the router. And, uh, you know, it's not that easy to discern it. So we decided to launch an initiative where we provide a cybersecurity label for these kinds of consumer devices. So smart printers, uh, IP cameras, uh, routers, smart home hubs, etc. And it's modeled after the uh, energy efficiency uh, labels. So, for example, you buy an air conditioner, one tick, two ticks, three ticks, you buy a refrigerator. And from a consumer perspective, it's easy to understand. Secondly, you can make a choice. Uh, so we have launched this in Singapore and we've had, uh, so far, we've got about nine uh, products uh, where it's voluntary. So, so far, we've got nine products and another 20, which are in the process of being uh, uh, certified. And we hope that we'll start a process where we can educate the consumer. Consumers can start uh, exercising their freedom of choice and uh, vote with their uh, wallets. And then hopefully this will shift uh, the, the needle uh, as we become more aware. We find that there's quite a lot of interest among our the companies who are producing these uh, products. So this is an example of how we want to raise the level of our cyberspace uh, activities. And lastly, of course, is the public education piece. Uh, empowering a cyber-savvy population. What we realize is that um, we've shifted the needle when it comes to awareness. Unfortunately, we now see there's a desync between awareness and adoption. People know that cybersecurity is a problem. People know that something needs to be done. But then when we ask them, have you done it? The answer is sadly no. So I think this is the gap that we recognize and we are in the process of uh, dealing with this. So when you ask me, um, what next for Singapore? I think it's a big shift now, uh, not to neglect the CIIs. The CIIs continue to be a high priority, but now to broaden uh, our coverage and with the Safer Cyberspace Master Plan uh, to uh, reach out to the broader uh, non-CI environment. Well, David, it's, it's been wonderful talking to you. We could talk for hours. I think there's many, many other things we could talk about, but thank you for taking the time. And, and I, we look forward to Singapore in the next five years. Given how much you've done in five years, you'll have everything solved in another five years. Uh, and, uh, and I also like to thank you on behalf of, of me and Jim for uh, your support of this podcast series. Uh, and, and we appreciate that as well. So thanks. We look forward to seeing you again in person sometime. We look forward uh, to your continued Singapore Cyber Weeks and all the other activities you're doing. And again, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Chris. Great to be here. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cyber Security Agency of Singapore.